My name is Jeremiah Hambrick, and uh, you inherited me from the Creek Church with The Merge. I was a worship pastor over there and came over with The Merge. And I have to kind of brag on Northwest for a second. And I'm not saying this just to get in good and you'll listen to me. I, I mean this. You guys are incredibly friendly. And I, I just want to say thanks for being so welcoming to my wife and my family and I. It's, it's really encouraging to walk in the door and have people smile at you and say, Hey, welcome to Northwest. Not that the creek wasn't friendly, but Northwest was, you guys are great. And so I just want to thank you for that. It's been an incredible experience to be a part of something like this where two churches come together and merge. So since I've come over, my job has changed a little bit. And every role I've had as a, as a pastor at different churches, there's been this little line at the bottom of every job description that says, and other duties assigned by the pastor. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm the pastor of and other duties right now. <laughs> And enjoying it. I've got my hands in a lot here, and it's been a great experience for me. And you guys have a great staff, and uh, just love what I'm doing here. Uh, my wife is awesome. Her name's Jennifer, and she's sitting down here. And she told me not to say certain things about her, so I'll refrain anymore. They were all good things, but she gets embarrassed. So I'll stop saying that. And I have four great kids. I have Ella, who's seven, Eli, who's adopted from Ethiopia, is six. Ezra is five. He's the Tasmanian devil that runs around here and destroys things. And then there's Zoe, who has me wrapped around her finger. She's going to turn two next month. And so that's a little bit about myself and my family. And, and before we get into the message today, I, I really just feel like I need to come clean and just be completely transparent with you guys and, and let you know that I, I have a, a condition. And I just want you guys to know what my condition is, and maybe it'll help you understand better maybe help you have a little more grace with me as I do ministry here. But I suffer from a condition known as SMD, and it's a selective memory disorder. <laughs> See, it's, it's not that I have a bad memory. I have a really good memory. I, I can remember lots of things. It's just I don't seem to remember what's important. I remember movie lines. If you want a movie line from The Princess Bride, you come talk to me. I, I've got that covered. Or if you need a random animal fact to impress your kids with, I, I got you. You can just come ask me. But if you want me to remember your name, <laughs> we might be in trouble. Now, if your name was like an animal name, then I'd have no problem with it. <laughs> I have selective memory disorder. And sadly, I've passed this on to my kids. It's, it's genetic. It's a frequent occurrence around my house to hear the words, I forgot when the van doors left open in the rain or the shoes aren't put away, or the papers that they've been coloring on all day are left scattered around the house. I forgot. And so this condition is, is serious, and there are many reasons for it. You know, the curious thing about this condition is studies have shown that 100% of people between the ages of birth and death suffer from this same condition. We all suffer from this in some way, shape, or form. And we have many different reasons for it, just circumstances in life, jobs, marriage, kids. The astute philosopher and thinker Jim Gaffigan once said, <laughs> once said and, I, and, I, and I think true words have never been spoken, he was talking about the birth of his fourth child. And he said, now, if you want to know what it's like to have four kids, imagine yourself in the middle of an ocean drowning and someone hands you a baby. And I think that's pretty accurate with four kids. Smart guy, Jim Gaffigan. <laughs> so we all struggle with this. We all suffer from this condition. And, and it's funny, and, and we can joke about it, but when it comes to our faith, 
when it comes to our knowledge and remembrance of who God is and what he has done in our lives, I think it can, can come at great cost to us. So go ahead and open your Bibles up to Psalm 103. We're going to kind of jump around in Scripture today and talk about Psalm 103, but I, I really want to unpack this for us today. Just a few verses. There's a lot in Psalm 103. If you get a chance to read it later this afternoon, go read the whole thing. It's an incredible passage. But we're going to focus on verses 1 through 5 this morning because there's just too much. And for the sake of our, all our SMD, I want you guys to walk out of here remembering something. So we're going we're gonna to focus on the first part of this psalm. And I love hearing the pages turn. That means nobody knows where it is. You'll find it. I trust you. So let's talk about Psalm 103. We're going to read this together, just verses 1 through 5. And I'm just going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems you, your life from the pit? Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion? Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like an eagle. Would you pray with me? Father, we open your word today expecting you to speak to us. God, may it stick and take root in our hearts. May it grow in us and chip off those, whole, those hard places. May we leave here looking more like your son. And Lord, may we leave here remembering who you are and what you've done for us. We love you, Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. So I want to pa- unpack the first few verses of this scripture, because I think sometimes as we read these things, we can, especially in the Psalms, I know my tendency is just to kind of skim over certain things because you've read them a lot or you see them and they just, you know, yeah, I think I understand that. I'm just going to skip over them. So verses one and two are really important to setting the stage for what we're going to talk about today and remembering who God is and what he has done for us. Look at what David says, bless the Lord, O my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Now, the, the word bless actually comes from the, the Hebrew word barak, which means to kneel. So David is calling for praise, calling for worship. He's, he's preaching to himself and he's saying, I need to kneel before God. And notice the tense that he uses. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. David is preaching to himself. If you look at the context of Psalm 103, 102 is a cry for help. 103 is David preaching to himself to remember who God is and what he's done for him. I think this is so important that we don't just skim over this because it really sets us up for growth and for remembrance. And it puts us in the position of remembering who God is. He's speaking to himself. Look at what he says in verse, at the end of verse one, and all that is within me. David is calling for true worship. Over and over in scripture, we're commanded to worship God with everything we are. Matthew 22, 37 tells us to love the Lord your God with all your soul and everything you are, right? David is calling for himself, his own soul, to worship God with everything that he is. Revelations 3, 15 gives us a great warning. He says, because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And we, we tend to baptize that term spit. The actual word is imeho, which means to vomit. 
God is telling these lukewarm believers at the church of Laodicea that he is going to vomit them out of their mouth because of their half-hearted worship. And I think this is important that David says all that is within me because he's calling for everything. He's, he's, because God is worth it. He is holy and transcendent and he is worth everything that we are. And he's, he's preaching to himself, to everything that is in him, to bless his holy name, to bow before him. Now, the last part of this, this section says, bless the Lord on my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Romeo and Juliet is a, a great play written by Shakespeare. And Juliet says in, in the play that, now I don't read Shakespeare, I just like to include his quotes to sound more cultured. But she says, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And she's basically talking about the ambiguity of names, how we name things, doesn't really matter. But the names of God are different. The names of God speak to his character. The names of God speak to what he does and who he is and how he works and how much he loves. If you just do a study of the names of God, every one of them says something about him. And so David says, bless his holy name. He's calling attention to who he's blessing, who we are to remember, who we are to praise. That it's not just some arbitrary God. This is Jehovah. This is the Holy One. This is the God who sustains and holds everything together. This is what David is setting us up for. Bless his holy name. Now, as we dive into this, David has set the stage up for us how our hearts should approach this. And now he gets down to it and he says, forget none of his benefits. Forget, and I love how he words that, forget none of his benefits. In other words, remember what he has done for us. Remember who he is. First of all, if you're taking notes or underlining in your Bible, I used to be one of these guys that like never underlined his Bible because I wanted it to be pristine and I realized that that was not good. And so I just encourage you to underline these. Don't, don't worry about whether your Bible's pristine or not like I used to, just underline them and, and that, that'll help you remember them. You'll recall them when you come back to them. But first point I wanna make is he pardons. Look at this, forget none of his benefits. Verse three, who pardons all your iniquities. It starts with forgiveness, right? He pardons our iniquities. Why does it start with forgiveness? Because that's the prerequisite for every other benefit he gives us. Do you guys understand what I'm trying to say? That God forgives all of our iniquities. I think sometimes we lose the power behind this because we really don't understand what our position was before God forgave us. So I'm going to ask you guys to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Keep your spot in 103 and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're just going to read this through verse 7. I think this just lays out the gospel. Start in verse 1. And you were dead. It's a feel-good message, right? <laughs> we weren't riding the fence. We weren't deciding, ah, oh, I think I might follow God. I think I might not. We were dead, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, in our trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Listen to this. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now catch this. Don't, 
Don't miss this. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, these are the best two words in Scripture. But God. We were dead, objects of wrath, but God. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This passage is so important for us to understand where we were and what God does for us. So that when we read something like this, he forgives all our iniquities. We don't just pass over it and say, oh yeah, that's really nice. Thanks God, I appreciate that. We have to understand that we were dead. We were lost without hope. Our righteousness is filthy rags. And God forgives our iniquities because of his rich love and mercy through Jesus Christ. What a great God. We should celebrate that, right? We've been forgiven. We're redeemed. That's an amazing statement to say that the God of the universe who transcends all of creation forgives our iniquities. My parents were missionaries in the Amazon. In, yeah, like, yeah, really, the Amazon jungle and landed on the grass strip runway and all that stuff. And there were these gnats in the Amazon and they would pick you up and carry you places and, and they would bite you while they did it. And they were awful, awful animals. And I always used, when I was a youth pastor, I used to use this illustration a lot. But imagine if I were to gather up all these gnats or mosquitoes and all this, these annoyances and put them in a jar. And I said, I'm going to light these guys on fire unless somebody dies for them in their place. Raise your hand if you would sacrifice yourself for all these. The distance between us and God is greater than the distance between us and these biting gnats. We were dead in our transgressions. And yet God loved us enough to forgive us all our iniquities through Jesus Christ. What a great God. What a great God. He pardons us. You know, I love the the tense of this verse. He pardons. It's actually a continual word. It means it's ongoing. Romans 8, 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation. So this is a continual act of God. I love what Spurgeon said about this verse. He said about Psalm 103, he said, I do not feel like preaching when I touch this text. I heartily wish I could sit down and have a happy cry over this blessed truth that my God at this blessed moment is forgiving me. I think that's the action we should have when we read something like this and when we compare it with Ephesians 2, which really clearly illustrates where we were before Christ. We should just want to sit down and have a happy cry because God is that gracious. It's an amazing statement. He forgives and pardons all your iniquities. Look at the next point here. Who heals all your diseases. Now, we have to be careful with this I believe God can heal physical diseases. I believe he does heal physical diseases. I believe stories of missionaries overseas who have seen people healed of malaria and and other diseases miraculously. 
But David is talking in a spiritual sense here. This is a context of spirituality. And Hebrew poetry is different from our poetry. Our poetry rhymes with words. Hebrew poetry rhymes with thoughts. In other words, the thoughts are parallel to each other. And you have to understand that when he talks about he heals us, sin and disease are together. They're, they're not opposite of each other. They're almost synonymous. Isaiah 53, 5 says, By his stripes we are healed. We're healed of our sin. We're healed of the, the results of sin in our life. And that's an amazing statement to think about, that God not only forgives our iniquities, but he heals us from the result of our iniquities. That that is free for us, that that is a benefit of knowing Christ. Does that mean we'll never have trouble? Does that mean we'll never get sick? No, not at all. There's this process called sanctification where you're, com you're continually being made like Christ. And so you're gonna deal with the results of sin the rest of your life. But God heals. He is faithful to do it. I shared this story when we first came over. Uh, I usually share it when we sing a, a certain song but my, my wife's parents have adopted numerous children from all over the place now. <laughs> and one of the little boys they adopted, his name was Luke. Luke uh, had spina bifida, which is a sack of nerves that sits on your spine. He had a cleft palate. Uh, he had a, a webbed leg into his abdomen and a club foot on his good leg. And he was pretty much messed up. And he had a heart condition. And I love the story of Luke because to me, this is the picture of the gospel where sin corrupts and destroys and maims and cripples, God heals. But with Luke, he had to have all these surgeries to fix these problems, but because of his heart problem, he had to have heart surgery first or he would not have ever survived the other surgeries. And so Luke has heart surgery and he makes it through and then he has spina bifida surgery, and he has all these surgeries, and where the doctor said, Luke would probably just need to amputate your legs and you'll never walk. My wife and I went to visit them last week, and Luke was playing football in the front yard with us, catching passes and having a great time with Eli. That's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Luke bears the scars of sin. He bears the scars of his past life, but he's healed. God starts with the heart. God starts with the inside of us. He heals. What a great God. Let's move on to the next. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. Now, the Hebrew word pit is translated grave a lot of times. And so David is actually saying he's redeeming your life from death, from the grave, from the pit. It's not a a beautiful picture. It's, it's an ugly picture. And, and he's saying that he redeems you from that. Now, it's hard for us maybe to understand that sometimes because we haven't been faced with death a lot. Uh, maybe some of you have. Uh, but for the majority, that, that isn't a reality to us. Back in this context, they would have understood what this meant a little clearer, that he redeems us from the pit. Now, uh, because of my SMD, I forget that I tell this story a lot, but if you were with the Creeks, so just bear with me. You've heard this story probably three or four times now, but uh, I'm going to tell it to the rest of you guys who have never heard it. As I said, my, my parents were missionaries in the Amazon, 
and I lived down there for, uh, I would go down during breaks from college and things. And we went on a, on a hunting trip, a three-day hunting trip. Now, this isn't like hunting here where you get in the truck and you take your tent and you go out and you hunt in the tree stand and you come back with, you know, a, a doe-eyed deer. <laughs> There's things in the jungle that hunt you while you're hunting <laughs> other stuff. And so we get in a, in a John boat and with a little 15 horsepower mercury engine and we go up river and we get to these waterfalls where we have to take everything out of the boat. We walk the boat up the waterfall. Then we put everything back in the boat. We start the engine to make sure it's going to start before we push it out in the water. Then we go up river to the next waterfall. And so we did this for eight hours and we get to the campsite and it's daylight, which is when we hunt here. Well, you don't hunt in daylight in the jungle. You hunt at night because it's not illegal to spotlight in the jungle. And so all you hunters got that. Trust me, you want to spotlight in the jungle. <clears throat> so instead of getting back in the John boat that night, we get in this little dugout canoe, this tree that's been cut in half and hollowed out. And there's five of us in the canoe. There's a guy up front. He's got a shotgun and a headlamp. The only guy with the headlamp, by the way. There's my dad in the middle who's sitting on this open-ended box. And then there's me. And then there's the oar man behind us who's a Yanomamo Indian. And so we go out, and I'm just looking at the stars. I'm not really much of a hunter. I'm like looking at the stars thinking, wow, these things are really bright. There's no light pollution in the middle of the jungle. And, and the stars are just beautiful. And then I hear everybody start whispering, and I look over, and they've spotlighted an alligator on the bank. And alligators' eyes glow red when you spotlight them. And so we know it's an alligator. And so I'm like, oh, that's cool. And so they pull us into these brushes to get this alligator to have pizza later. And... It was actually pretty good. And uh, they shoot the alligator, and then they slide it into the boat. The business end is, is facing me. And the alligator's not dead. It was just stunned, and it decides to wake up and get very angry. And it thinks that I did this, but I, ha I, I don't even have a knife on me. And so I had been thinking, the Indians had been walking up and down the, the sides of this canoe, and then we were like this far out of the water. And they were just walking like it was no big deal. And I was like, man, these guys have incredible balance. I found out I have really good balance too. And I stood up in this boat and started yelling for them to kill this alligator. But sadly, nobody brought a machete to kill the alligator. Well, common sense says don't shoot the alligator in the canoe or we're all sinking in the middle of this river in the middle of the jungle with an angry alligator in the water. And we had just seen a big electric eel swim by. And so it, this was a perilous situation. I was close to death. At least I felt like I was. And my dad, who did not fully comprehend or understand the situation, is doing what every good father would do. He is laughing hysterically at me. He's safe. He's on the alligator's back. Can't get him. But it's picking him up and rocking the canoe. And I'm freaking out. So they pull the alligator back and... I won't make the story as long as it could be, but they finally, after three attempts, get the alligator to die, and we had pizza. But I've been close to death, and that's a pretty scary position to be in. We can, I can laugh about it now. It's a funny story. It really is. I mean, what, you know, Northwest Cary Pastor has been in the boat with a live alligator in the middle of the jungle who tried to eat him because he thought he shot him when he didn't do anything when he's just looking at the stars. I just, I'm, just I'm, I'm your friend, man. Don't eat me. We had pizza, and it was really good. Um, alligator pizza is actually very good. I've been close to death, and 
And the Bible tells us that God redeems us from the pit. If you look at James, you don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll, I'll turn there for us. James 1, 14 and 15 says this, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now catch this. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's a sobering thought. James is telling us, you know, I think a lot of times we think that, that the devil's on our back and he's got the carrot in front of us and he's just tempting us all the time with the carrot. You, you've seen the old pictures where the guy's on the donkey and he's leading the donkey with this carrot. And we, we kind of get this mentality, well, the devil made me do it. But James is very clear that we're led away by our own desires and our own lusts. Again, we go back to Ephesians 2, our own position is dead. And we're led away, and when sin is complete, it brings death. And this is what God is rescuing us from. This is the pit that we are rescued from. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know them? And God redeems us from that. Now think about this for a second. This is, this is incredible. Righteousness and justice were at one time against us. And God worked in such a way that righteousness and justice work for us now through Christ. That's a crazy, incredible thought. The righteousness of God and the justice of God condemned us because we were dead in our sins, but because of God's great love, they now rescue us through Christ. That's the God we serve. That's the God who redeems us from the pit, who raises us with Christ. He made us alive. Ephesians goes back and says, we are made alive and raised with Christ. John 10, 10 says, I have come to give you life and life abundantly. There is a dramatic contrast between the life of Christ and the death and sin. And God redeems us from this pit. Two more points. Who crowns you with loving kindness? And compassion. The word crown there is translated adorn, and it means to make beautiful. I have a daughter who's seven, and she has this game called Pretty Pretty Princess. I don't know if you guys have ever played this game. I encourage every man in this room to play Pretty Pretty Princess. The object of the game is to be made beautiful and adorn yourselves with these plastic crowns and earrings, and you spin the wheel, and if you land up, but don't get the black ring. That's bad news bears. You don't want the black ring. But at the end of this game, I'm, I'm pretty attractive. <laughs> I, I've been made beautiful. I've been adorned with jewelry and crowns. But God doesn't adorn us with those things. Look at what he does. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Now, this is really cool. Don't miss this. Loving kindness is translated grace. He crowns you with grace Compassion is translated mercy. He crowns us with his grace and his mercy. Didn't we just read that in Ephesians 2? This is what we're crowned with. This is what we're made beautiful by. Not some temporary crown or temporary gold on our head. This is God's never-ending grace and mercy that makes us beautiful. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness I love David Platt's uh, walkthrough of Genesis 3. 
And I think it's important for us to kind of go back to the beginning again to understand where we are without Christ and what he has done for us. But Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have just sinned. They've just caused a separation between them and God. And they realize that they're naked and they do what? They go and make, they sew fig leaves together and make clothing for themselves. But notice what God does. It says, in the cool of the day, God came looking for them. David Platt says it this way. God pursues the guilty, he clothes the shameful, and he protects the fearful. God came looking for them, and when he found them and found out what they did, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? Then they get into the blame game. They blame each other and the snake and all, everything, and nobody wants to take responsibility. And God does what? He clothes them in skin. God clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. He's been clothing us since the beginning. And then I love what what David Platt says at the end here. If you notice, he says, we gotta get him out of the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in their sin. And he kicks them out to protect them because he wants to have that relationship with them again. What a beautiful picture. What an incredible story. We're clothed in this righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we sing this with Jesus Messiah. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. There's, there's a changing of clothes. We're crowned in his righteousness. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ and Christ takes our filthy rags and bears the wrath of God for us. Beautiful. He crowns us with loving kindness and compassion. Lastly, he satisfies He satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Now, we all understand our desire to be satisfied. We're always looking to be satisfied with something. Winston Churchill says this, I'm easily satisfied with the very best. It's a pretty pretty true statement. We're all easily satisfied with the very best. The problem is, once we find the very best, there's something better. Why do you think we're always in this mad dash to get the new phones or the new computers or the new iPads or whatever it is? We're just trying to be satisfied. Now, I asked my wife's permission to share this, and I quoted her. I actually wrote it down in my notes to say what what she said. Her response was, she said, I will allow myself to be exploited for the gospel. And my wife's awesome, isn't she? (laughs) That's so cool. I I fell more in love with her when she said that. My wife understands, and and many of you who have had children, you understand pregnancy and and the cravings that you get. Nothing will satisfy you unless you get what you're craving, right? Now, I've never been pregnant, but I've lived through three of them, so I can understand this craving. My wife used to crave, she craved really, they were, you know, cravings are like nuclear power. They can be used to power a city or to level a city, right? And, and so her cravings were good, but they were bad because I figured, well, if she's eating, I should be eating too. And they kind of, you know, my city grew a lot. <laughs> but my wife used to crave cookout milkshakes. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's, all the students, oh, this sounds good. We have the food truck from cookout. We'll be outside after. No, I'm just kidding. She used to crave these cookout milkshakes and she was like, it was insatiable. She would just, I have to have a cookout milkshake. It didn't matter what time it was. 
And so we'd go get a cookout milkshake. And of course I would get one too. And if you don't ever look at how many calories are in a cookout milkshake, just don't, uh, it'll make you upset. She also craved Big Macs. Yeah, another one, McDonald's. My, my almost two-year-olds will ask for McDonald's. I think we've failed as parents, but my wife would crave McDonald's and I, and I truly believe that's why Zoe likes McDonald's so much is because that's all, that was her complete diet, or Big Macs. Lunch, dinner. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna stop. She's looking at me. <laughs> he satisfies us. 1 Timothy 6.17 says this, and actually I'm gonna have you guys turn there because I think this is worth underlining in scripture. Paul's instructing Timothy here. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. I think that's so true for us today in America, not just Northwest Cary, but in America. We have a lot of stuff. And by the world standards, we are incredibly wealthy. And Timothy is to instruct us who are rich not to be conceited or to fix our hope in the uncertainty of these worldly riches, but on God who supplies everything for our enjoyment. There's a trap that we tend to fall into with satisfaction. Rabbi Zacharias was talking about this and and understanding who we are. He's a great philosopher and theologian. He says, he's talking about men who were married to some of the most beautiful women in the world and still had adulterous affairs on them because they were consumed with this appetite for just there's something better. There's something more. And I think Paul's words are a warning to us not to fall into that trap of trying to be satisfied with the bigger house and the nicer car and prettier wife, but to be satisfied in Christ who does it for our enjoyment. So what do we do with this? Well, we know he forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies. So the whole point of today's message is that we might remember who God is and what he does for us. So I just want to give you a couple practical things we can do that might help us remember. And my wife and I practice some of these, but these aren't, these aren't like blow your mind things. You're not going to walk out of here and think, wow, I never thought of that. These are very practical, easy things, but I want you to write them down. Number one, and this is, this is so key, talk about the gospel. How do we remember the gospel? We talk about it. My wife and I were talking about the message and she, she was helping me with some of these practical aspects and uh, she had a great idea and we do this from time to time but on your next date night with your wife, talk about what God's doing in your life. Talk about those great things he's doing. Talk about them with your friends when you go out to dinner. Talk about them around the dinner table with your kids. That's so important. My sons just recently came to Christ because of a talk around a dinner table about the gospel. God shows up in the most unbelievable ways when you least expect it. And it's so incredible to watch it happen. Talk about the gospel. Number two, write it down. I uh, was recently digging through some boxes of old 
memorabilia that I'd kept through the years, and I ran across some of my old journals, and I just started flipping through them. And as I read through what God was doing in my life, it brought back a lot of memories of how God's worked in me over the years. And I don't journal a lot every day. I, I, I just never developed that habit. But it was important for me to look back on those. I'm glad I wrote them down. My wife and I, every New Year's Eve, we'll, we'll, we'll go back and look at our last New Year's Eve list of things we wanted to do. And we'll kind of look through and say, hey, I remember thinking I was gonna do that. <laughs> Write it down. Now, you can't tell me you don't like to write down things because Twitter is taken off. Facebook posts are posted in the hundreds of millions every day. We, we like to write things, but those things don't have to be shrines to us. They can be shrines to the gospel and they can be encouraging to somebody else because you're writing down what God has done for you, not what you had for dinner last night and how good it was. Not that those things are bad, but I think sometimes we spend too much time on us. And last one, live it out. Live it out. I'm gonna turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. I want you to remember this. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Remember that you have been bought with a price. Live like it. You are no longer slaves to sin. You are no longer dead in Christ. Live it out. That is so contagious to a world who's looking for hope, who's looking for answers. Matthew Henry says this about Psalm 103. This psalm calls for more devotion than exposition. Don't be so heady with this psalm. Live it out. Remember it. This psalm should drive us to our knees in praise or repentance. Now, for the believer in here, this is, a, this is a call to remember who God is and what he has done. But for those of you who don't know Christ, who've never been redeemed, scripture tells us that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can come to Christ and you can receive these benefits just as you are. Remember, he doesn't start with the outside. He doesn't start with the cleft palate or the spina bifida. He starts with the heart. promises to never leave us the same. Father, as we close today, Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts. God, that we wouldn't just let today be a day where we let this go in one ear and out the other, but that it would be a day of change in us.